Introducing Bishop Jason. Ah, glory to God. <laughs> ah, glory to God. How y'all doing tonight? Good, good, good. Hallelujah. Y'all thought she just left y'all, right? Just sitting there, just like, all right, well, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Is everybody doing good today? All right, all right, all right. Let me get this up and going. So we are on the book of Acts, chapter 14. And who is going to be the first person to go tonight with some? Ivan, praise the Lord, Ivan. Thank you. Thank you for starting. Right. Right. Yeah. Amen. Amen. That's good. That's good. Who next? Yes, ma'am. Sister Sonia. How long were they were the were, were they preaching there before they left? Hmm. That's a good question and it cannot be answered. The reason is because it no, no, nowhere does it give us an exact timeline that that I know of where anywhere where I studied of exactly how long they were in this particular place in Iconium. Um, so I can't tell you an exact time. I can tell you that in total this, you know, this whole missionary trip which is what we're seeing here um, and that, that's where I put that map up there. So you could, you know, we hear all of these names, you know, Antioch and Salamis and Paphos and Italia and per all these different names. But I wanted you to be able to get a little picture of where they were. That was this is what is considered Paul's first missionary trip. And so, you know, he starts over here in Antioch. You know, he, he starts way up here in Antioch. And then, you know, he moves, you know, he goes down in chapter 13 after he was sent out. Remember, that was where they, they, were, they were praying and they were fasting. And so they're fasting and praying, and then he comes down here and, you know, moves to Salamis and, you know, goes into Paphos and comes through here. And so, you know, we pick up around this area right up there around number nine is when they're in Iconium. But the whole time um, for this whole trip here, you know, these 12 different places that we see, you know, um, them going to, that took about a, around two years, a little bit under two years. So, you know, they might have been there a couple of months, you know, before this whole thing, you know, blew up and they were like, all right, you know, they got to go. Um, 
but doesn't tell us exactly how long. But they were there, um, you know, long enough time to obviously bring, you know, plenty of converts. They were there for a long enough time to bring a division within the city, which says they were there for, you know, some time. When you think about the city of Oviedo, how long do you think it would take us to, you know, I hate to say it like this, but how long would it take us to divide the city, you know what I'm saying, to, you know, to cause the city to say either I'm for them or, you know, against them. It would take us some time. So, you know, I would say definitely, you know, a few months, you know, they were probably there preaching and, you know, ministering the word of God. Yes. That, um, that's all like Asia Minor is what that is. I don't, I don't think that's Israel. Yeah. Because that's actually, that's actually like, you know, the, that, remember, that's at the time when the Roman Empire was like strong. So they had all of these different provinces and stuff like that. So it's Asia, Asia Minor. Right. Right. Well, they have, well, you can definitely see the Greek influence, you know, that's there, you know, with the Greek mythology and things like that, you know. And, and, and I mean, you got you to think, you got to go back to when you're looking at the, um, the book of Exodus, you know, you start there and you look at how many gods they had. I mean, when you look at the scriptures and you see all of these plagues that were in that, that God brought against e, um, Egypt, every one of those plagues was in contradiction or in opposition, should I say, to the deity. For example, when you look at the plague of the frogs, they had a god that was an alligator-faced god. That was one of the gods they worshiped. Well, you know, alligators and frogs don't commingle. You know, they're not in the same place. So if there's a plague of, of, of frogs, then what is that saying about that alligator god? It's saying that alligator god is no, nothing compared to the god who sent these, you know, um, these frogs that are in abundance. When you look at the, um, the, 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 the plague of darkness and that darkness, well, they worship the sun god. They worship Ra. So you think about it. If this god was able to bring such a darkness that he literally was, you were able to feel the darkness. That's what the Bible says in the book of Exodus. So, you know, you got to look at, you know, from Egypt, they, they, you know, they, they were always worshiping gods. Um, and, and one of the things here, and I, I was, I was going to say this later, but I'll say it now since we're talking about it. But when you look at their, you know, their, their mindset, what this shows us, when you look at the way that people are, that people are looking for something to worship. They're looking for something to connect to. I mean, this is not, you know, something that is just born just, you know, out of, out of nowhere. It is inside of everybody. Every one of God's creation has inside of them a desire to know who, you know, who they're supposed to worship, a desire to be that way. And so they're, you know, they're the same way. Um, and, and so it's important that we recognize that. But definitely you have the, you know, the Greek influence that comes in. And that's where they get this whole, you know, situation here, you know, with the whole Zeus and, um, you know, and Hermes and stuff like that. So that's what it would be. Good. All right. My sister.
That's good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad it stuck out. It's it's a good it's a good point, you know, to look at, especially you know in the day and age in which we live. You know, you have this restoration of the fivefold ministry, this restoration of the apostles and prophets, and all of these things that have been going on for the last few years. And what Sister Grace says is very very important that we realize that everybody who um, is going by the title apostle is not an apostle. Um, you know, some people are, and, and there's a difference. There are, you know, people who are apostles of a denominational structure. And, and, and in that sense, what happens is, you know, instead of calling them a superintendent or calling them a bishop or calling them whatever, they go ahead and they call them an apostle. They become an apostle because they oversee a certain amount of churches. They've been in the organization for so long. And so they'll call them that. But it's not, you know, an apostle like right here. We see these apostles being designated. Um, most definitely, one of the criteria that has to be there, you know, when you're looking at an apostle is you have to be divinely selected and appointed to be an apostle. Now, here's something that's important in this text. The reason why I'm glad this stuck out to her is because you'll notice that it is. it says the word apostles, not apostle. It uses a plural word when it's dealing with these apostles here, speaking specifically about Barnabas and Paul. Now, we know that Paul, it's easy to understand why Paul would be called an apostle because he was on his way to Damascus. He had an encounter directly with Christ. Christ, you know, directly ministered to him, directly witnessed to him. He was blind for three days and he had a direct call from the Lord. Now, Barnabas is a different scenario because Barnabas, there's no record. Now, that's what we know that there is no record of Barnabas having that experience with Christ the same way that Paul did, which makes it, you know, obvious to us that in, in order for the Bible to call someone an apostle doesn't mean that they had to have that same exact experience, but they definitely have to be sent out, number one, by the Holy Spirit. It has to be the Holy Spirit that is that is delegating and designating this apostleship to them, and it also has to be recognition by the church, which is important for us to realize that as well. So, it's not just something that, you know, you just decide, well, you know what, I, you know, I have, you know, all these churches under me, so now I'm going to be an apostle or whatever the case is. That's a wrong designation. It's not even, it's not even scripture. When you look at chapter 13, I mean, think about it. How many churches were Paul and Barnabas over when they were, when they were separated as apostles? They weren't over any churches at that time. They were, they, but they were sent out on a mission by the Holy Spirit, and that is, you know, the work of an apostle in this particular setting. It's a little bit different in here because you got to remember, you know, they are going out and they're going into territory that hasn't been evangelized yet. They're going into places that have not heard the gospel yet. They're going to bring forth the kingdom of God into these areas where present day it's difficult to find areas. There's only, you know, there's very few areas that have not been evangelized and ain't nobody going over there, you know. So it's important that we realize that, that that's one of the main things, you know, for the apostle, you know, of, the, of today. You know, there are some differences and we actually have a, a study that we do in mentoring and, and the phase two of the mentoring program that deals directly with what, an, what a present-day apostle is and what is all of the criteria. But I think that it's important for us to realize here that it, when, when, he's, when the scripture is using the word apostle in this text, it is definitely designating Barnabas as an apostle. It is calling Barnabas an apostle, and Barnabas was not one of the original 12. Barnabas, there's no record of Barnabas having this, you know, experience the way that Paul did. So we can, we got to realize that from that, we can see that there can be a special designation. But I do want to say that I do agree with Sister Grace 100%. And there's a lot of folks out there that are, you know, using the title apostle that they don't deserve it, and they shouldn't be using it because they're not. Amen? All right.
Who's next? Who would like to go next? Yes, yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. Yes. Yes. Yes, those, those, those were the people. Now that, that is when he's in Lystra. So we see um, these three different places. Is he in Lystra or is he in Derby? No, he's in Lystra still. No, nope, he's in Derby. So he's, he's been there. He's been preaching. There's people that have been converted and people who have come to Christ since his time there. So those are the people that he has won to Christ, obviously, that are there in that city or the people that have been following him through this shorter, por- through this shorter portion of the missionary trip. So, yes. All right. Who else would like to go? <clears throat> yes, ma'am. Amen. Good. Man, if there, I, th- I think if there's one thing that we see in the in in the church that we read about in the Bible, and even and even early church history, you know, like I, I think I, I would, well, I know for sure I was preaching on a Sunday and I was talking about the hymnals, and you know, a lot of times, you know, we make jokes, you know, about hymnals and things like that, you know, and 
you know, it, it's, it's, it's really sad because when you look inside of those hymnals and you see the songs that were written, these were people that were looking forward to heaven more than they were looking forward to a breakthrough here in the earth. I mean, these are people who were looking forward to, you know, hearing well done, good and faithful servant. They were people who were passionate about pleasing God while they were here because they realized, you know what, I'm not just living, you know, because I want to have this. I want to have that. I want to have the next thing. At the end of all of this, I'm going I'm going to him with just me. And, and all I'm going to have is whatever I did for him or did not do for him. All that That's all I'm going to have. When we come before the Lord, it, it, every every accomplishment that we have is going to either have it was for his glory or for mine. And the ones that were for his glory and that were motivated by him, those are the ones that are going to survive. Everything else that was for my glory, guess what? It's all consumed in fire and it didn't mean anything. And it's amazing how much time we spend and we invest, you know, our time, our talents, our, you know, our finances and everything in, in, in these temporal things that we're going to have only for a little while, you know, and I'm not saying, look, I ain't talking about, you know, walking around and just, you know, not having anything because that's imbalanced. All right. We live here in this earth. But the question is ultimately, what are we striving for? What are we running after? You know, what are we, you know, pursuing with all of our heart? Are we pursuing that, you know, sound of his voice in our lives or are we pursuing other things? You know, are we pursuing the appearance of being blessed? Like the Bible says, you know, they have an appearance of godliness, but their lives deny the power thereof. We got to have the power. We've got to have the fullness of what God wants. And he wants us to have it, but it's entirely up to us. But you can't have it if you're focused only on the here and the now. If you're only focused on what you're going to have here in this earth, you're never going to be able to live for the life to come. It's just not going to happen. Amen. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you all a couple more minutes here. DeAndra, did you want to say something, DeAndra? Is that was that why you were? All right. Well, come on then. See, see, that's the Holy Ghost. That's all right. Just give us, give us, give it. All right. Right. See that that that's a wonderful question, isn't it? I think it's a great question. How many of y'all know why 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 they tore their clothes? Raise your hand if you know. Come on, raise raise it up. Okay, I got one, I got two. All right, so look at that. So you see, I did that for you. You see that that question. Everybody else in here, they not everybody got that answer. Um, first of all, they didn't tear their their clothing off. Okay, so no no they 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 it's it, it they, they tore their clothes is what they did, and when they when they tore their clothes, what it was is that was a sign of radical indignation for what was going on. So they, you know, they had their shirt, you know, up to here and they just, you know, tore it, you know, in, in, in a sense of just showing, listen, you know, I, you know, it demonstrated this anger and this just absolute dishonor to, you know, to, to what was what was going on. You know, they were demonstrating that. And so that was a common practice in those days. You know, when something, you know, when you were really demonstrating that it was just, you know, that you were totally against something, you know, tear your clothes, you know, sackcloth, you know, throw dust in the air. You know, those type of things were all just symbolism. So it was just a symbolism that was customary to those days. Um, it would, you know, it, it, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what it would be the equivalent of today 
as far as showing, you know, how angry you would be, you know, maybe like punching your hand or something. I don't know, you know, I mean, just something like that. Or, you know, it just depends on how you are. But I mean, that, that's what it was, though. It was, it was nothing else. They, it's just a custom of that day. And so that in that society, they just tore it, you know, and that was it. Absolute disregard. They hated what was going on. With the Greeks? Yeah, it could be. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know exactly with the, with the Greeks, but I know for sure that in those times and you know, with among those people, that was what that was. It was just a sign of they just they, they were not with what was going on you know it's like major disappointment and just they did not want anything to do with that so for sure but you see that throughout the scriptures though you know you'll see people that they'll you know they will tear their clothes and you know put sackcloth on i mean it happens you know and you see it in you know in, in the book of acts and other places Well, it was definitely it, it was definitely showing indignation for what was going on. So good, good question. Very good question. Yes, ma'am. Why was he arrested? <clears throat> well, he was arrested. Well, he was he wasn't arrested. He was taken and stoned here. That's what you're talking about. That's what you're talking about. Show me where, 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 where. That's all right. That's all right. We're 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 only in chapter fourteen, but I'm gonna I'm gonna tell, I, I I will answer that question when I get there for sure. That's good though, Vita. I like that. I like that. I was like, man, did I miss something? I'm like, I read this chapter over and over. I'm like, he didn't get arrested. <laughs> that's good. That's good. Um, but he he was he Paul uh, man that that I can't I can't remember exactly, but but it was it, it was he he was arrested for preaching the gospel is what he was arrested for. Yeah, that 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 that's what he was arrested for. But I will get you. I will get you the spe specifics when we get to that chapter. Right. Yeah, they just. They, I mean, they, they. Paul. Paul was just really serious. Like I said, this this here is the first missionary trip. Now he's coming back to you know to Antioch, and like we see at the end, he goes back to the place where he was sent from, and he's testifying to them and telling them everything. And then he's going to go out on a second missionary trip. And we'll look at that one in the next chapters that we go through. And then he goes on a third missionary trip. I mean, this guy was serious. I mean, he was definitely, you know, going to do the work of the Lord. So, you know, they, they hated him. I mean, he was going into cities. And, I mean, you, you know, we, we're going to look at this in detail in a moment here. But, he, I mean, he was, he was really serious. And Paul wasn't just, you know, seriously passionate. Paul was seriously educated. 
You know, Paul was like the, the, the ultimate weapon in the hands of God because this guy was a zealous, zealous Jew when, you know, before he was converted to Christianity. And he was knowledgeable. I mean, this guy knew the scriptures like it was nobody's business. I mean, he was a, I mean, he was, he was a lawyer. I mean, this guy knew his stuff. So when he was out there preaching, you know, these people, you know, are trying to debate, you know, go back and forth. And he is just throwing down everything that they're saying. And he's pointing them right to their scriptures. So that is the reason why they hated him so much. Because he was not only passionate, he was not only, you know, uh, um, educated, but then he was powerful. I mean, God worked these, you know, great miracles through this guy. So he was, you know, he was just too much for them to handle. So the Jews, you know, as as always, as we see, you know, when in, in chapter 13, they're there and they're preaching and the Gentiles say, you know, we want to hear these things the next Sabbath. Everybody was cool with it until they saw the crowds that came. The Jews demonstrated, you know, the, the jealousy and the envy. And it's not because they're Jewish. It's just because, you know, they, they were the religious leaders of that day. And now all of a sudden someone else comes in that is teaching something that is new. And everybody wants to hear that because God is doing something. And so, it, you know, it's part of, you know, God turning their hearts, you know, so that way they will turn to him in repentance. All right. So going in, beginning in chapter 14, since no one else has anything else they want to share with us tonight, praise the Lord. We will start in verse one. It says, now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of Jews and of Gentiles, believed. And so we see that after they shook the dust off of their feet in chapter 13 and they left and went to Iconium, they're there and they begin preaching. They do what they always do. Paul always goes into the, into the synagogue because you go in there and after they pray and they read the scriptures, there's going to be an opportunity for exhortation. There's going to be an opportunity for people to, you know, communicate. And so he takes that opportunity and he, and he begins to share. And, at, and at, as a result of his sharing, there's some of the Jewish people that are there and some of the Gentiles. They begin to believe but then the next verse tells us but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren so when you look up that word unbelieving it literally means not willing to believe these were people that were sitting there they were hearing the soundness of the teaching of the Apostle Paul they were hearing the clarity of the message and, and you know they were seeing the same exact thing that everybody else was but they were unwilling to believe they did not want to believe what was coming out of his mouth they were just going to reject it already that was what was in their heart and in their mind. So what do they do? Instead of them keeping it to themselves, they go on ahead and they begin to talk to the other Gentiles, the ones that haven't believed yet, the ones that haven't heard this message, and they begin to say, you know, and, and what they're doing is they're communicating to these people, telling them all kind of lies about the apostles and, and saying that they're coming here, stirring up trouble, stirring up strife, and that's the reason why they're so hated, because they're being lied about. So when they go and they're, you know, they're there, they're preaching, now the Gentiles are there and their minds are being poisoned. But the scripture goes on to tell us in verse 3 it says therefore or in another translation it says so they stayed there a long time and we and, and sister Sonia asked that question how long was a long time we don't know but we know that it was probably a few months for sure that they were there and they were doing what they were sitting down in a corner and being quiet no they were speaking boldly in the Lord. They, they were speaking boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of his grace. They were preaching the message of grace. They were preaching the message of salvation through faith in Christ Jesus by the grace of God. As they were preaching that message, they were preaching it boldly. And what was God doing? God was sitting back in heaven and not doing nothing. No, the Bible says that God was actively involved with them. He was bearing witness. They weren't conjuring up some kind of something. They weren't doing no emotional 
anything to get people built up to a place that wasn't anything like that. These guys were there and they were preaching the word of God boldly. And as they preached the word of God boldly, God bore witness to the to, to his to, to the message or the word of grace by what? By granting signs and wonders that were being done by their hands. And so as they're there preaching, we know that obviously he says their hands. He doesn't say his hands. So we know that Barnabas was obviously involved in this signs and wonder working that was manifesting in what was going on. Awesome and powerful time. They're preaching the word of God. Power of God is manifesting. God is bearing witness. And then it tells us something that is that, that for me is a wonderful thing. It shows us, but the multitude of the city was divided. You know why that's so great? Because we can know that not everybody's going to believe the message we preach. There's going to be some folks that are going to believe what we preach. There are going to be some people that are going to be passionately stirred and moved by the message that we preach. But yet there are going to be others who are going to not want to hear nothing that we got to say. They're not going to be stirred by what we're saying. And so what is it? What, what, is, what is important for us? What is important for us is that we continue to be consistent in the preaching of the word of God and the testimony that we give and that we continue to preach that message. Why? Because you know what? You may be in a workplace that you have the half of the city that don't believe. It, it doesn't say it, it, it doesn't say that, you know, I'm not saying that in your workplace, half the people are going to believe and half of them are not. No, you may be in the workplace where the half of non-believers are the ones that work with you. And what are you going to do? You're going to continue to be consistent. You're going to continue to preach that gospel. And, you know, when I say preach it, I don't mean you got to be on there with a bullhorn and doing it like that. You don't have to do it that way. You preach the gospel by being an example of all at all times. You be an example when all of those people who are hating and all of those people who don't want to hear the message that you're sharing don't want to hear about the Jesus that you love so much and that you're offering to them you know what you're doing you're still demonstrating the character of Christ and every opportunity that you have to demonstrate the love of Christ and to just make them cringe because you are so God-fearing in the way that you are you take advantage of those moments because you know what you may have that half of the city that doesn't believe and eventually if you will continue to be the salt listen sometimes you know you take you know when you when you're seasoning stuff you know it isn't initially that the salt, I mean, I, you know, I don't know much about cooking, okay? I know very little about cooking, glory to God. I know how to eat, glory to, glory to God. But, you know, when it comes to comes to cooking, I don't know. But I do know this. I know that when, you know, when you're seasoning a chicken and stuff like that, you don't just, you know, leave, you know just, just go over the, the outside of it and just, you know, pour some salt on it or whatever. No. What do you do? You know, I've seen, I've seen you know, folks that are doing turkeys and chickens and sticking their hand up inside of the thing under the skin and poking holes here. And they got stuff all over the place. Trying to do what? They're trying to make this seasoning penetrate through the meat so that way you don't have to have the piece of skin in order to taste the seasoning, right? You want to be able to, you know, cut it open and boom, you got the flavor that is there. Well, the, well, the Bible says that we are salt in this earth. And so salt has to be on, on, on a surface consistently in order for it to be able to penetrate. And so what happens? God may put you in a place where there are just some obstinate, ungodly, just don't want nothing to do with Jesus people and that is fine God put you there because he knew that you would be salty enough to affect somebody and if not if, if, if at all at least one thing that is that is going to be for sure is that your life is going to leave an impression upon their lives which is more than enough if you share the gospel it's not me it's not you we don't produce the results it is God who produces the results and so very very important that we realize I love reading the text because then it also goes to show us something that just because these apostles were 
were preaching boldly, just because signs and wonders were working through them, just because there was a great, you know, education that might have been better than any of us in here, guess what? Not everybody was believing anyway. And so you can have everything that you think you need and not everyone's going to believe. But what is important is that you are faithful with the ones that do believe. And you know what? If you're in that other workplace, you know, that has all the 50% of the people that believed and you're just surrounded by Christians, man, y'all need to get on a mission together and go and find some other places where you can penetrate together and really bring that gospel light of Jesus Christ. Amen? Number five, verse five here, it says, and when a violent attempt, now mind you, they were already poisoned, you know, they, they had already poisoned the minds of the people, the Jews that didn't want to believe had always already poisoned the minds of the Gentiles, and after some time, after they finally, you know, came to that place, and I believe the reason why it is in there that it says the city was divided is because it's showing, you know what, the line has been drawn, and these are the people that are going to accept it. Now, Paul and Barnabas, it's time for you guys to move on. So when the scripture says, and when a a violent attempt. In other words, these people were coming at them by both the Gentiles and the Jews with the rulers to abuse and stone them. What did they do? Did they stand there and say, all right, you know what, let's go get the bats and we're going to stand up for the gospel. That is not what they did. They did what Jesus said. Jesus said when they persecute you in one city, you need to go on ahead and move to the next city. And when that persecution gets that intense, because what, what, what is it going to be or what value is it going to be to you or, you know, or to your mission if you die in the first city that you're preaching? in. It's not going to do any good. And so rather than go and get killed, you know what you do? You, you see that they're getting violent. They're getting crazy. You've already got disciples there. They're not coming after these disciples. They're coming after you because you guys are the major mouthpieces and the major vessels that are being used at that moment. So you know what they did? It says they became aware of it and they fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of, of Lyconia and to the surrounding region and what did they do and they were preaching the gospel there so when they leave this place they leave there and they go out they say all right we've preached we've done what we needed to do and now they move on and they continue to preach so then we go on to verse 8 it says in Lystra a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked this man heard Paul speaking Paul observed him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed said with a loud voice stand up straight on your feet and he leaped and he walked. Now, when, <clears throat> when the people saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And so we see that the apostle Paul comes into the city. And you guys remember earlier on, I believe it's chapter three of the book of Acts, when the apostle Peter, he is coming to the temple with the apostle John. And as they're going to the temple, there is a man who was laid by the gate beautiful. And he's another one that he's begging alms and he's asking people to give him donations. And the scripture says that almost the identical thing happens here. Peter, look at Peter and John, look at this man, and they say to him, silver and gold have we not, but what we do have, we tell you, you know, get up and walk in the name of the Lord. Notice the, the, the exact, um, replicas that are here in the first situation both was a crippled man from birth both of these men were crippled men from birth in other words it wasn't someone who had an accident who someone could go ahead and say well you know what this person just got better or something changed no it was a bona fide guaranteed miracle that occurred in these people's lives these people had never walked at all there was never any walking that had taken place in their lives from their mother's womb they weren't able to walk and they look at them intently now now notice this in, in the beginning of chapter 4 
14, we see that when he is in Iconium, when the Apostle Paul is in Iconium, he goes into the synagogue first to preach the gospel. That's where he goes to preach. When he comes over here to Lystra, there's no synagogue there. There's no synagogue that's listed. It doesn't show us them going into the synagogue and doing what they normally do. And so this guy was there and he was preaching. And I don't know about you, but I've been in situations where I've, you know, and my, my voice carries and I get excited and I start talking loud because I think I'm preaching everywhere I go. And so I have my, I'm having a conversation about the Lord. And then, you know, and I'll be honest with you, as I'm having a conversation with the Lord, you know, you can tell because I don't know about you, but I got some pretty decent peripheral vision. And I can tell when people are like, you know, eavesdropping on my conversation. And I will raise my voice just a little bit to make sure they can hear what I'm saying. And I'll start to, you know, minister that word. And, 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 and you know, sometimes, you know, when I, in, in certain situations, you know, people will get engaged in those conversations. And, you know, they'll ask you questions. And it's a great opportunity. You know, so I ain't telling you walk around yelling all the time, all right? I'm just saying, if you notice, you know, some folks are trying to eavesdrop, you know, don't, don't, you know, raise your voice an octave or something, you know, and just let them hear, you know, what you're sharing or whatever the case may be, and, you know, maybe turn your attention to them. But this guy right here, he is sitting there, and somehow he's hearing the Apostle Paul speak, and the Apostle is looking at him intently. He is seeing something in this guy when he is, when he is ministering this word. He's seeing that faith is coming to life as the Apostle is speaking. He's probably there talking about Christ, talking about the grace of God, talking about the things that God has been doing, talking about these miracles. And this guy is sitting here and he's listening. And the scripture says that he sees that this guy has faith in order to be healed. And so what does Paul do? Paul just walks away and says, nah, you know, don't worry about it. No, Paul is moved. And he says, okay, my message that God has given me is producing faith in this guy's life. And so what a better opportunity than right now to go on ahead and call this man forward and, and you know, release this healing into his life powerful miracle occurs. The Bible says this guy gets up and Paul doesn't whisper. Okay, this is, this, this again is a great demonstration of the faith of Paul. Because, you know, sometimes we'll be like, all right, Lord, I'm going to go pray for this person. And, um, you know, I'm going to mumble this prayer. You know, I'll stretch my hand forward like this. Father God, heal him. You know, whatever. No, that isn't what the apostle Paul did. The Bible says that the apostle said with a loud voice in verse 10, he said with a loud, he yelled over there. He said, stand up straight and walk. And this guy, I mean, it, it, it it must have been an amazing picture to see, but just think about the experience of this guy. This guy has never walked before, okay? And, and something comes over him that he has never experienced, that he has never seen, and strengthens his legs. Now, you got to think about this. A person who has never walked, okay? Legs are stiff. Legs are weak. And God, I mean, if you've ever seen somebody who's going through, you know, um, who's, who's broken a leg or something like that, and they're going through therapy, I mean, they're taking a long time to be able to, you know, walk and use their legs right. But this goes to show you the miraculous power of God that manifests at that moment. This guy gets up immediately. He begins to leap and do what? He does the same thing the first guy did. You know, he's leaping, he's praising God, and he begins to walk. So now the power of God is manifesting, and the scripture says that the people see this. The people that are there, that are hearing this message, they see this wonderful miracle, and they're like, this is, this, this is, this is just crazy. We have, we have never, ever seen something like this before. So what do they think? Immediately, they think, man, God, these guys must be gods. You know, these must be the gods that we're worshiping. These must be, you know, Zeus and Hermes, you know, or Jupiter and Mercury, which is what, you know, what they were. You know, these must be them because they, you know, they, their God, you know, their main God is Zeus, you know, coming from the whole Greek mythology. And so, 
they go and the scripture tells us that <clears throat> now when the people saw that what Paul had done, they raised their voices saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And it's funny because the book of Romans, and the reason why I said what I, what I said earlier is because the book of Romans chapter 8 says that all of creation is groaning and is awaiting the revelation of the Son of God, okay? It's awaiting the revelation of the sons of God. I'm sorry, plural. The sons of God, the, the creation, there are things that are going on that is awaiting the revelation of the sons of God. This is something that I said. It is inside of all of us that we want to see the glory of God manifested, the power of God manifested. And these people were no different. They were trying to do their best. They were worshiping Zeus, and they were, you know, doing their thing because that's what they thought was right. Was it right? Absolutely not, as we're going to see in the message that Paul preaches but they're having this mindset and they're like wait a second these guys are gods now initially you know Paul and Barnabas you know they're talking a language Paul and Barnabas don't know so they don't realize what's going on they just you know they, they're thinking oh these people are getting excited you know they're getting stirred up you know something's going on but then the Bible tells us it goes on to say and Barnabas they called Zeus in verse 12 and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker and it's funny because you would think that you know Zeus who is like the main deity you know he's like the the big god of gods you would think that Paul would be that one but it seems in this situation that Barnabas was more of just kind of like a, you know set back you know relaxed and just like watching kind of like he was the one who was letting everything happen but Hermes was the god of wisdom you know the god of eloquence and speech and so he was the speaker that would communicate those things so they called it you know they call them by these names and in verse 13, it says, Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. So now the picture is starting to change, and the apostles are starting to notice, wait a second, these people are bringing these things out, and they want to sacrifice to us, like if we're something special, like if we're some kind of gods. But when the apostles, Barnabas, and this is a clear designation to Barnabas being an apostle, um, when, when, when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude crying out and so immediately when they see this happen you know they could have used this you got to think about this they could have easily used this as a way to get the people's attention and, you know, later on, turned the whole situation around and pointed to Christ and, you know, whatever. Because, I mean, if they would have just said, hey, we're deities, you know, we're gods, then what would have happened is the people are going to listen to anything that they say. So guess what? They wouldn't have had a divided city. They wouldn't have had no persecution because guess what? They were gods. They were gods. And so nobody was going to mess with them. Everybody was going to bow down to them. And that's how it was going to be. But they said there is no way on God's green earth that we are going to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and that we are going to dishonor Jesus Christ by going ahead and bringing glory upon ourselves because that will bring death to us and it will bring end to our ministry and to the mission that God has called us to. So what do they do when the apostles Barnabas, they, they, they tore their clothes and they're crying out and they run to these people and they say, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, fulfilling, fulfilling our hearts with food and goodness. And with these saints, 
sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. So I want you to notice the message that they preach. You remember all of the messages that we have that the Apostle Paul preached when he was preaching to the Jewish people. What did he always do? He always went from the Old Testament and he brought it all the way through to the present day. He tied in all of the prophets and he tied in all of these messages. But notice his message here. He never mentions anything in the Old Testament. He never goes into that. You want to know why? Because those people would have been lost. They have no idea of the Old Testament scriptures the way that Paul does. They're not scholars in these things. Remember, in this city, there's not even a, a, a synagogue there. So that means that, you know, there's not even enough Jews in that in that area that they would do their own, you know, proselyting and, you know, bringing in converts to Judaism. They weren't even in that place. So the message that, they, that he preaches, he says, listen, we are preaching a message to you of repentance. We are preaching to you about the God who created heaven and earth. See, they didn't know anything about that. They knew about, you know, these different gods, but not this God that was responsible for everything that, that went, that took place in creation. So he communicates to them and he's saying, listen, we're just like you guys. We are, we, we have passion just like, I mean, we're flesh and blood just like you are. We are not divine in ourselves, you know, be, don't, don't come, you know, sacrificing unto us because that is not what we're here for. We're not here to get a message, you know, that, or, or to get glory and honor for ourselves, but we are here to bring glory and honor to God. We're here to bring you salvation, and that salvation is not in us. That salvation is only in the God of all creation. In verse 16, he says something that's interesting, and a lot of people will use this to try to say that um, this proves that people, you know, who were, you know, before Christ or whatever, that they're not accountable to God, because he says here, in bygone generations or in generations past, God allowed the nations to walk in their own way. What we have to realize is that we know for sure, and the apostle writes this later on when he's writing to the Galatian church and to the different churches, he tells them that, you know, or, or Ephesians, I'm sorry, he, tell, he tells them, he says, listen, and, you know, back in the, you know, in the, in, you know, in, in, in the past, you were not a people, speaking to the Gentiles, you were separated from God, you were separated from the promises, you were separated from the covenants, but because of Jesus Christ, you are now part of God's family. And so in the generations past, there was one chosen people and that was who that was the children of Israel God revealed himself to Abraham he gave Abraham a promise and he made a nation out of Abraham and brought them you know into the land of Egypt and you see them there but even in that time God still gives witness because he says here clearly that he doesn't leave himself without a witness in other words nobody can say well I didn't know because everybody knows God's natural you know the natural world points us to God it doesn't point us to salvation but it points us to God and it should make us ask questions that will then lead us to the truth of salvation. So he's not saying that people are not accountable or anything like that. He clearly says in verse 17 that he left, that he didn't leave himself without a witness, but he did all of these good things. And now, mind you, after they preach this message, and they communicate clearly that they are unworthy. What he said, it says that he could scarcely. In other words, the people still wanted to sacrifice to them. The people still wanted to make sacrifices, even after they offer them salvation. They're like, "Yo, man, you know these people are still trying to sacrifice." But here's what is amazing. Let's look on to verse 19. <clears throat> it says, "Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there." And having persuaded the multitude, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, then the disciples gathered around him. He rose up and went into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derby. Now, wait a second. What happened here? Just a moment ago, they were trying to sacrifice because Paul was so great. 
okay? They, 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 were, they were ready to worship him and give him whatever they wanted, okay? They, they, this is what was happening. And then all of a sudden, they flipped the script in a couple of moments, and now they're going to stone the guy. And now they, they, were, they were killing the guy that they were just about to worship. It's the same thing that happened with Jesus. Jesus is coming into the city on Sunday, you know, Monday, and they're, you know, bowing down, throwing their, you know, their, their, their clothing and palm branch on the ground saying, Hosanna in the highest, meaning Lord save. They're talking about how great he is and come on, come around Thursday and they're talking about crucify him, crucify him. I mean, this is exactly what they did to Jesus. They're doing the same exact thing to Paul. They're, 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 they're getting ready to worship the guy and then they move into the scenario where now they're going to, they stone him. Now, you got to think about this when the scripture tells us that they left him for dead. Remember, stoning wasn't just no little pebble in the face, okay? I mean, they threw enough stones at this guy to where he was obviously not moving. He was obviously not conscious. He was obviously, you know, if he was breathing, it was very faintly, and he looked dead. And so what did they do? They grabbed him. They dragged him out the city. Now, this is another proof, you know, when you grab somebody and you're dragging them, if they're alive, you know, you're going to feel that. So they were able to drag the guy out of the city, and they left him out there. They left him out there for day. He's dead, you know, so we got rid of the problem here. And the scripture tells us that the disciples surrounded him. They're praying, and then all of a sudden we see a miracle. Now, there's... There's, there's no proof, okay? Here's, here's the thing. There's no proof that Paul was dead. It just, he seemed like he was dead. That, that's, that's all that's there. So we don't know for sure if he was dead or if he was not dead. But what we do know is that every indication was that he was dead. And regardless of that, here's, here, here's where it is. Because if he was dead, we see a miracle of resurrection, which is absolutely awesome. If he was not dead, we still see another miracle because this guy just got stoned to death, okay? I mean, he just got stoned. I mean, understand, these stones are breaking bones, okay? These, I mean, you talk about not being able to walk the next day. You know, you, you heard the saying, I feel like I was run over by a truck. Yeah, this guy really got run over by a truck. And you know what? If it wasn't a miracle of resurrection, it was definitely another miracle that we see of total healing in his body because the guy didn't get up and start limping. No, not at all. He got up and went Went right back into the city. Now he didn't go preach. He just went back in, got his stuff, and then he was he was like, "All right, I, you know, persecution rose. They got me this time, so I'm gonna leave." So he goes and he preaches. You know, he, he finishes preaching, gets stoned. We see this wonderful, glorious miracle. And you know, when we're looking at this situation here, it is important for us to understand it ain't over until God says it's over. No matter what you're going through. No matter what you're facing, no matter what the situation is, no matter what is happening to you, no matter how rejected, no matter how hurt, no matter how whatever you are for the gospel or anything else, if God doesn't say it's over, don't give up. Don't quit. Continue to press on. Continue to believe. Continue to allow him to do what he is going to do. Verse 21 tells us, and when they had preached the gospel to that city, speaking of Derby, they and, and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. And so obviously we see here that they went to the city of Derby and they went there, they preached, and they were able to make many disciples. Now notice the disciple is not made overnight, okay? So we got to take that into consideration. If they were able to make disciples, that means that they were there for some period of time preaching and teaching because in order to make a disciple, how do you make a disciple? Well, you got to teach them all of the things that Jesus taught. You've got to communicate that gospel message. So they had to transfer all of this information and bring that to their attention. And they did that. They preached that message. They 
they, they taught, they brought those converts, they made the disciples, and then, okay, you know what, it's time for us to go back. So what do they do? On their way back, do they avoid the churches? Do they avoid those cities? No. They go back to Lystra, they go back to Iconium, and they go back to that other Antioch. And then in verse 22, what are they doing? As they're going back to these places, they've been gone for a little while, so when they're coming back to the place, they begin to strengthen the souls of the disciples. And I love the way the apostles strengthen. They exhorted them to continue in the faith, saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. Now look at the message that he's preaching. The message that he's encouraging them with is not, you know, a little, you know, pacify them, make them feel good or whatever the, or whatever the case is. That isn't the message that's preached. The message that he preaches, he said, listen, just continue in the faith and it is going to be through much persecution, through persecution that you are going to enter into the kingdom of God. So that is his message of encouragement. He's saying, just like Pastor Glenn did on Sunday, get to work. Don't get discouraged. Just get to work. Do what God has called you to do. Continue forward. Don't let the persecution, don't let the difficulty, because trust me, when the apostles left those cities and they, you know, those Jews, those Jews were doing everything they could to hinder the gospel from going forward, to hinder these people from continuing on in their relationship. So when they had appointed elders, so notice what they do. The first thing is they give them a message of edification, so they build them up. And then what do they do? They appoint elders, so now they give them some organization. So they've, they've gone ahead. They preached the message there first. They left the city. And now when they come back into the city, they've given the church some time to develop some leaders within the church, you know, some people who are automatically going to come to the forefront. Because you know what? If you've ever been in a situation where you got to do some kind of team activity, you'll always notice who the leaders are because they may come in there and you may start in the beginning, don't know who's going to lead, but before it's all said and done, someone is leading the party. Someone is leading the effort because that's just what happens, and it's the same exact thing that occurred here. They were people that heard the message that the apostles were preaching and teaching, and what happened? Suddenly leaders were rising up, so when the apostles come back, they do what? They go ahead, they give them the message of exhortation, and then they go ahead and they give them some organization, and they appoint, they appoint some elders in every church. They do it in every single church they go to. They appoint elders and how do they do it with prayer and fasting it says and they prayed and they fasted it wasn't it wasn't just because everybody said hey you know so and so can really teach or you know so and so can really preach or you know so and so is really out there evangelizing that wasn't what it was they may have went ahead and said you know what who's who are the people that are you know doing the, the main the main stuff and they might have pointed out and said you know brother Ivan brother David you know brother Angel these are the guys that are doing it they said okay you know we're going to go into prayer and fasting and we're going to pray before the Lord and see if any of these guys are the ones that God wants to be the elders within this congregation so they prayed and they fasted Fasted, and, and, and they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And after they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. Now when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. Now when they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Now, it's, it's believed that this whole portion between the missionary journey or, or you know, the, the missionary trip, so to speak, that they went on, between that and this time here, they figure it's about four or five years of time went by that they were there. So they come back after they're done with everything that they were called to do. They went and they came back to the church that sent them out and they said, okay, we're going to tell you all of the things that happened. So they come back to this church and now they're communicating and they're encouraging. That's, you know, and, and, and I want you to know that it is so important that when you are out there, because you don't have to go to like nine cities or 12 cities or whatever the thing my computer died, but... 
You know, you don't have to go to like 12 cities in order for you to, you know, do something great for God. You could simply go to work one day and just have had a missionary experience, you know, where you were there and you were able to lead someone to Christ or you were there and you were able to share the gospel with some people. Or you were able to do some stuff. Don't wait until, you know, you, you have this, you know, long list of things. No, communicate those things. Why? Because that encourages the church. It encourages the church, it builds the faith of the church, and it shows the church what we all need to be doing. Amen? All right. Let us all stand to our feet tonight. Let's get our tithes and our offerings ready. Praise the Lord. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this day, Lord God. We thank you so much for this opportunity that we have had to come into your house to seek your face, Lord God. And Father, we just thank you so much for your blessing. We thank you for your presence, Lord God. And Lord, I just pray that we will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of who you are. Father God, I pray that we will continue to grow in intimacy with you. And Father, I pray your blessing over every giver in this place tonight, Father God. You see every need that my brothers and my sisters have. And Father, tonight I pray that according to your ability, Lord God, that you would provide whatever their needs are, Father God. You see the brothers and sisters that are looking for employment, Father God. We pray that you would stretch your hand forward and that you would create, Lord God, the opportunity for them, Lord God. Make it happen. Father, those who need increase, Lord God, we ask you to provide the increase, my Lord. Those who need a miracle, Father, we ask you to manifest your miraculous in their lives. Father, we pray today for your blessing, my God. And Lord, I thank you because you are faithful and you are always on time, my God. So help us to be good stewards of what you have given us, Lord God. I praise you and I thank you for this tonight, Lord God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.